0: We are in 1st Timothy chapter 2, and as you remember, um, Paul has been talking in this chapter about prayer, that first of all, the church that God's building, His bride, the foundation which is Jesus Christ Himself, the key element is prayer. It's interesting, the apostles never asked Jesus how to do miracles or how to walk on water or how to teach really well. The only thing they ever asked Jesus is, teach us to pray. And you can catch that in Matthew. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Luke, it's at the end of Jesus' ministry. But both times they ask him, they're like, tell us the key. It was prayer. They knew that if they could unlock the secrets of Jesus' prayer life, that the power, the teaching, the miracles, the evangelism, the all everything would come from prayer, and that's the way it's supposed to work, right? The church moves forward on her knees because uh, if we can create some big, magnificent thing, but God's Holy Spirit isn't in it and hasn't done it, uh, and man can do that. I mean, man can create big organizations, and one of those are the church. Um, And it really hasn't been built by a work of God's Holy Spirit. And so that's where we need to come back and say, Lord, we realize that we're going to know if we're your church in the fact that we are a praying church. So tonight we started communion during every Wednesday night during worship. Just come up and grab some. Or when you get the papers on the way in, you can grab one. And just in the middle of worship, just have a moment with the Lord. I know often me and my wife like to share that together where I'll pray over the bread and she'll pray over the juice or vice versa and just come to the Lord's table and meet Him. And I personally come in faith believing just like the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment that as I take communion, I'm just touching the Lord in this bread. Thank you, Lord. You just handed it to me. I'm at your table. The Bible says, we're two or three gathered in His midst. What happens? jesus is here in the midst with us and although we don't see him yet we love him and so we can love on the lord and let him touch us through communion and um the other thing is before each service we're going to have a time to pray uh, at least a half an hour ahead of time i'll get here whenever i can on wednesday night we're just going to pray right between the two buildings right over there bring your chair over there and we'll pray on Sunday mornings, we'll pray right here. We'll just set some tables up, or some chairs up right here in the cement area and then um, because're the stage is going to be out in the outfield there uh, this coming Sunday. And we'll just pray here for you know, a few minutes and those who want to pray and you can come as early as you want and just pray and, and we'll gather together and, and uh, really looking forward to that time to those who want to come early and do that. But he says in 1 Timothy 3.15, the key verse out of First Timothy, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. I love that. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Imagine society without Christianity we know societies are like that out there don't don't we? and we're thanking God we're not born into those countries you can see the belief about God in a country and then look at the country itself it says a lot why has the United States been unusually the most blessed country in all of history really? well go back to the roots of our forefathers the senators, the congressmen, they sat at their desk and they all had their Bibles. Even some of those that were agnostic or not fully Christian, they still believed the Bible, the Judeo-Christian ethic, even though they weren't traditional Christians, some of them, very few of them I might add, they still believed the Judeo-Christian ethic was the best ethic to build a society on. And... Um, they used the Bible to, to guide and direct as they formed our country. And uh, and so, unfortunately, we have fallen a long way from those foundational roots of, of what's going on. But nevertheless, Paul's telling Timothy how to conduct yourself in the church. So whatever topic we're looking at, we're not going to be able to transpose this and say well this is how I'm going to start running my business then no he's not talking about how to run your business he's talking about how the church is to function in our time of gathering together and worship very important point so in in, in chapter 2 verse 7 Paul says, which I am appointed a preacher and apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now if Paul had only said, I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher, then we would have to say, well Paul, that's your opinion. The things you've been telling us, and especially the things he's going to tell us tonight, which... End up seeming very controversial in a society like ours today. Paul doesn't simply say, I'm a preacher and a teacher. He says, I am an apostle. Peter, what he says about Paul is, Paul's writings are hard to understand, but they are scripture. Wow, powerful thing. And so Paul is saying, This isn't my opinion, this isn't just for the church in Ephesus. I'm speaking as one who has direct revelation from God. This is how the church of God is to be now presently and throughout history until the Lord returns. And he makes that clear. This is an official message establishing the facts of the church for all time. In Ephesians 3.8, he says, To me, who am the less than the least of all saints... This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. His ministry is mainly to the Gentiles. He preached to the Jews first, but then the Gentiles, and that's really where the bulk of his ministry was. It's a neat thing to know what God's calling on your personal life is, and then to really press in on that one area. And Paul definitely did that. Well, we start tonight in verse 8 looking at the role of men in the church. He says in verse 8, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So, a weakness that I'm seeing in the church is men praying. You, you will find most prayer meetings, it's women will be at the prayer meetings. You'll find in most churches that have been around for decades, it's older women (laughs) with the grandkids playing, you know, coloring on the floor that are at the prayer meetings. Men seem to have more pride. They have less of a humility. They're trying to be the strong one rather than to be the one leaning on the Lord as they should. And so... It's true Paul. Paul's time, and it's true in our day. Men, you're not filling it, and because you're a man, you probably won't fill it to the degree you should, but you should be at the prayer meetings also. And you shouldn't just be there in body and not in spirit. Don't just show up and sort of take a nap, you know, look at your cell phone, check out the scores, you know, do a little texting. No, he's saying you need to be there in it. (coughs) Wherever the prayer meetings are, wherever the church gathers, you know, the church is not a one location. The church is the group of people that all have submitted themselves into that body. This case is Calvary Chapel, Los Alamitos. So wherever we meet for home Bible studies or men's groups or women's groups, whatever, we're all submitted under this authority and this fellowship. Wherever we're at, men step up. And I, I think a big part, and I think Hollywood's really done this to us, is, is we are told to go on our feelings. You know, you see the movies, and the boy, they get the right music playing, you know, and, and they get the, the right lighting, and you feel that that person's falling in love with that, that person. You feel like, man, I'm falling in love with them too. They they, they they know how to stir the feelings. And you're just, oh, you're, you're feeling that romance and feeling that love. And, and then they end on a high note, and you're like, oh, that felt so good. And then you're back to reality, and you look at each other going, I want to watch another movie um, because of feelings. So guys aren't going to feel it. So if you're waiting for a filling to get into, emotionally into the prayer, it's probably not going to come. But that's what God desires. God desires passion in all his relationships, right? And so men in particular, step up at the prayer meeting. Be the one praying, praying with supplication. Remember we saw that earlier, intensely. And and you're, you're lifting up your hands. It's not going to tell ladies to lift their hands up because they do that naturally. They're naturally sort of more humble human being. Guys are more prideful. It's hard for us to. We feel silly when we humble ourselves. Women just so beautifully lift their hands and Lord, I love you. It's just so sweet. And guys are like, oh, I feel so childish. I feel silly. Feel stupid right now. Oh, I just I don't like how I'm, this is lifting my hands, making me feel. It's pride, it's pride. My kids, when they were small, they used to wait for me to come home and and they would all there and they would have all their hands up, daddy, 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 and I couldn't get the front door open. They're all standing there at the door and you know, trying to get in, and, and then all all of them, I had four children, they all wanted me to hold them at once. You know, it's like, I can't can't do it. You know but it was so, I just remember them looking out the window with their hands, Daddy, Daddy, as I'm walking down the way coming to the house. And, of course, it's time of surrender. It's where you, you, you say, I'm submitted. Freeze. Put your hands up. What's, what's going on there? It's, it's, it's saying, I submit to authority. I'm submitted. It's a humbling place to be. Get your hands up. Get on your knees. Walk backwards. Get on your knees. Now pray. <laughs> the police don't tell you that, though. They don't tell you to pray. They... But uh, in essence, this is what the Lord is saying. It's God's desire. there would be passionate with the men. they lift up their hands. Yes, it's humbling. And keep doing it until you're broken and you're falling upon that rock. You said, fall on the rock and be broken, lest the rock falls on you and crushes you to powder and then lift up your hands, not because you're angry or doubting. Men often, you know, get pulled off. Their hands go up. Man, I'm going to get you, you, know, pull over. Some eight-foot guy picks up. Yeah, I'm out. come on, come on, everybody. Hold no, on, no, I'm sorry. Speed away. But we'll lift up our hands in anger. We'll lift up our hands doubting. You know, why me? Why always me, God? You know. Men will do that. Men will be angry. Men will be frustrated. Men will quickly, with their emotions, turn to anger. Quickly, with their emotions, turn to wanting to punch somebody. But yet, will we just do it in the sweetness like the ladies do? Just in a sweet spirit. I'm surrendered. I don't care what anybody else thinks about me right now. I don't care if I look like I'm a holy roller right now. You can say I'm a Pentecostal, I'm not, but I definitely believe God's a God of miracles. Lord, just just that beautiful child lifting their hands up to daddy, daddy, daddy. This is what God desires in his church. But yet, in most churches, it's the women who are praying. They're the ones leading the prayer meetings. They're the ones lifting up their hands. They're the ones with passion. And guys are just sorta, you know, sitting silent. That's not the Lord's desire in his church. Boy, one of my favorite verses on having faith in prayer is found in Mark eleven twenty four. 24. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. I love that. Jesus, um, if, if he wanted balance in prayer, he sure didn't teach it. He's, he's, you no, know, he doesn't say, now pray whatever's on your heart, but don't get crazy. He didn't say that. He's like, sit in that mountain, be uprooted, brooded, moving, thrown into the sea. It's like, Lord, that's wild and crazy stuff, you know. I say to you two or three, agree together on anything. It will be done for you. It's like, wow. The Lord definitely, in his teaching on prayer, wants us to realize we're talking to God who can do anything. And to go ahead and pray it. God will say no. He'll say wait. He'll say yes. Whatever God's going to say. But, but don't you get small in your prayers. Don't you get discouraged in your prayers. Don't lose heart in your prayers. Um, believe God even to move mountains. And that's what Jesus taught us. Well, then we go on to learn about the role of women in the church. And I might add, it's as we talk about this role of women in the church, it's really only about the time when the Bible's being taught. So as we look at this, it's the role of women in the church, why the scriptures are being taught. And, and notice that as we look through here. Now, first, I just want to read it and, and just soak it all up. There's several verses here. And uh, and then we're going to come back and break it apart a little bit. So, verse nine through fifteen. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let women learn in silence with all submission, and do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the women being deceived fell and trent to transgression. Nevertheless We'll let the helicopter go by. Okay. Here we go. I'll go back to verse twelve. And do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man but to be in silence, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue with faith, love, holiness, with self-control. Now, my fear in teaching these verses is that I'd be misunderstood and make somebody angry or turned off by this teaching. Dr. Ironside when he taught on this passage a lady afterwards came up to him at the end of the service very angry and she looked at him and said Dr. Ironside if I were your wife I would put poison in your coffee and he said ma'am if I were your husband I would drink it. I don't want anybody to be mad here. But I do want to make three points before we start into this study. First of all It is essential that you understand that we are speaking on the role of women in the church and not everywhere in society. Secondly, it's because of the culture we're in today that some teachings of the Bible seem backwards, antiquated, out of date, or even oppressive to women. Thirdly, but I ask that you would listen to the whole study, hear the complete scriptural reasoning the Apostle Paul gives us by the Holy Spirit. So first of all, in verse 9 and 10, he tells women um, in the same manner, just like I would like men, all the men everywhere, lifting up holy hands with a, a, a passionate prayer, in the same way, this is for all the women, that they wouldn't adorn themselves with moderate apparel and propriety, moderation, not braided hair, gold pearls, costly uh, clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good work you know for our church I, I really don't think it's an issue but this sort of reminds me of what was happening uh, in the Jewish church the Jewish Christian church that James talks about where the rich would come in and it was very clear that they were wealthy by how they dress and how they acted and they were walking in and you know wanting the best seats in the house and the poor people he just you know stand in the back and and they were second-class citizens and James says this is sin if you're acting rich and you're treating somebody poor you're in sin and so in the same way I, I, I suppose in in some settings and it's just not in our setting especially in the Calvary Chapel movement its isn't I've never seen it an issue anywhere where people are trying to make people feel bad about um, their poverty, or women trying to get attention by, um, you know, wearing some expensive jewelry or a mink coat or whatever. Uh, I've just not seen that happen, so it's really not an issue. But in some societies, it very well could be, especially in the societies where you have the rich, 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 and the poor, poor, poor. I could see um, that that this being an issue, but for us, it's not. I think Peter says it best. In 1 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging of the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with an incorruptible beauty and of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. I think that says it all. I really do. And then in verse 11, So let a woman learn in silence with all submission. No, I'll just say, I love the New King James Bible. But understand, whatever version you have, whatever <clears throat> translation you have, we always refer to the original language, which in this case is Greek, um, some Aramaic, but mostly Greek. And, and so when I see this word, it, it just says, let women learn in silence. I, I want to say, what is that Greek word? And the Greek word here is heisioos. It's the best I can pronounce it. And uh, interesting, this word's already been used in this chapter. Back in chapter two, verse two, it tells us there, for kings and all pray for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and here's the word, peaceable life, in all godliness and reverence. So. A better translation would have been, let women learn in a peaceable spirit, not a contentious. That would be the opposite. They're bringing contention. They don't like what was taught, and they're arguing. And a matter of fact, this word is used twice more in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 here, and also again, we're going to see it in the very next verse, verse 12. Um However, I, I do need to make note, Paul writes about women speaking in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 with much stronger language. And um, let me read that in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 to 35. For God is not the author of confusion, but of what? Peace. As in all the churches of the saints. So it's not just Corinth, all the churches. Let your women keep silent. Now this is the word sago'o. sa-go-o. And this word um, does mean very strongly to hold your tongue. Be quiet. Be silent. And I will point out here a minute, it's it can only be during the time the Bible's being taught. Because in 1 Corinthians eleven five. He actually says the same, same book of the Bible. In verse 11, he talks about earlier about women when they pray and prophesy in the church. So women are clearly speaking, right? We, we, we see the women singing, praying, prophesying. And, uh, and so it's not about being silent the whole time. It's just about the time when the scriptures are being taught. But going back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, So let your women keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak. But they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And like I said, in earlier chapters, women clearly were speaking and praying and prophesying. He said in that case, the women should wear a head covering to show that they're in submission. But then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:16, 16, if this custom is not true for you, then let it go. It's, it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply in our culture that women wear head coverings. It's a sign of submission. It's just, not, it's just not the case in our culture. But in this culture, the Eastern culture of this time, it was. So what do we, we learn from this? That, that women are to have a peaceable, quiet spirit, which is precious in the eyes of God. And when the teaching is being done, and evidently in this scenario, it wasn't just the pastor preaching, people added in stuff as he was preaching. The women, or the, excuse me, the, the, the men would share also. So it was more of a group type of teaching rather than a single guy teaching. And maybe questions would be asked, and that—that's the way it was in the Jewish culture. A guy would teach, and he would ask somebody a question. He would point to him and and ask them to quote the scripture or to give their uh, two cents on it, which is sort of what we do in home fellowships, isn't it? And um, and so in, in this context, he, he's saying that the women are are unruly; they're not—they don't have a peaceable spirit. Now I'll just say. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, almost every verse is is having to tell them, stop doing this, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. It's definitely a church that's out of order. You can read at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. He says, I wish I could teach you guys. You're so carnal, so divisive, that i got to treat you like non-Christians, as if you have no spiritual discernment. Because you act like non-Christians, not Christians. So what was going on in Corinth, I do believe, was unique. And that the women, uh, some say that these are women that were saved out of prostitution or out of slavery, and they didn't know how to conduct themselves in society. I I don't know, but I do believe Corinth was a unique situation going on. And I think that the, the, the whole of the scripture is not that women don't talk, because... Paul said in First Corinthians, when they pray, when they prophesy, we also see them in 1 Corinthians 14 when he talks about them singing. So to be honest with you, if you say, well, how do you think it's happening in our church? I'd say I think it's very, very balanced. I, I, I do sense not just amongst the women, but I sense amongst the men as well. There is just a peaceable spirit of, of yieldedness to one another, to the authority of the church, myself, and the other leaders, but most importantly, to God. So it really, there is no conviction here tonight. But when I talk on tithing next week, there will probably be some conviction. Right? That's, that's a whole lot of talking. We're not talking about that next week. I'm just kidding. But but here, I, I think as we read this tonight, we, we say, yeah. But again, I, I've seen times and in every church where people get prideful, become divisive, do divide the church. And I think these scriptures are very much um, at that time needed to say, hey, there's there's not to be anything but a peaceful and a quiet, yielded, submitted spirit. And he says that right there, that they would learn in silence with all submission. This word is a military word. Wiersbe, in his commentary, says it this way. Anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that rank has to do with the order and authority, not with value and ability. Just as an army would be in confusion if there were no levels of authority, so society would be in chaos without submission. So let me explain it this way. We're all Americans, right? And, and when you're driving down the road, we all say we're all a bunch of equal Americans. And, and even if you're driving a Mercedes and somebody next to you is driving a beat up old car, we don't, we don't feel like one's greater than the other, even though we would like to have the Mercedes. Um, <laughs> but now as you're driving along and a black and white car is behind you and the lights click on, and the red and green or red and blue go, start going off, are you gonna stop and pull over? You most certainly are. Now, is the reason we are pulling over because the guy driving that car is a greater American than us? A greater citizen than us? Because he's richer than us? Because he's muscularly stronger than us? He's not superior to us at all, except in one way. When he's on duty in his uniform, in an official car, he does have authority over us. And if you disagree with that, the weight of the entire United States government will back him up. Well, until about three <laughs> weeks ago. I got to get rid of that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> hypothetically in non-COVID times this is true Um, and so in the same way when we say that men are to be the dominant voice the dominant presence of leadership in the church service is not saying men are better than women are men are more spiritual than women? Are men are spiritually stronger than women? No. It's simply the authority structure the Lord has set up. And uh, and this is why he says in verse 12, and we're going to talk more about why this is the Lord set it up this way in a minute. Let me cover verse 12. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence or peaceable spirit. So Paul here is saying, in the church, this is a principle that God has set up. But again, we're not talking about in the business place. We're not talking about in politics. We're not talking about in some other venue. You know, you don't go to the dentist and say, I only want a male dentist or... You know, you're at the banks and I, I, I only want a man banker. It, it would be sort of ridiculous, huh? Be, because that's, it has n- no bearing on it whatsoever. Here it's not about women couldn't teach as good as men. That's not why. I know there, there are women that are much better communicators than men. That's not the reason. Here it is simply to teach referring to the Bible. So could women sing, pray, prophesy, share their testimonies, and could they teach on other things in the church other than the Bible? I say yes. If if the, the woman was organizing a missions trip, and we have her come up and share for 10 minutes what the vision of the trip is and how to get signed up and what to do and all of that, I don't think that doesn't bring glory to God. I don't think we have to have a man only in that case. This is only talking about the teaching of the Bible. So, women and teaching of the Bible is not to have authority over the man in that one way. And in honest reality, it's about her and her heart. It's about her and her heart. If she in her heart is saying, I should be the pastor of this church, I know the Bible better than that preacher. And I could do a much better job preaching that. I taught at the Women's Bible Study, and I really taught that passage clear. He should listen to my teaching. It would help him to preach better. If there's, if there's something going on in her heart where there's, there's not this peaceable, submitted spirit, then it, this is what this is supposed to, 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 to bring into focus. This is what's bringing to the light, that very heart. But this is about in the church and the teaching of the Bible. So why is the woman to be in authority over the man? Why is the woman to be in, a, in under authority to the man in the teaching of the word in the church? He tells us in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So understand, in creation, and, and it doesn't jump out to you when you read 1 Corinthians or read Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. It doesn't jump out to you right away that Adam was alone for a day or two. We don't know how long. It was just him. Adam was the only human being on earth. And he was naming all the variety of animals. That tells you how smart he was right from the get-go. He was giving them all names suited to each of them. But as he was giving names to all the various animals, he realized there was a big distinction in some species between the male and the female. If you you know about animals or fish or whatever, you can tell there's, there's a big difference a lot of times between the male and the female of one same species. But he also realized that they had something that he didn't have, and that was a companion. So at some point, when he was done naming the animals, and he realized, so in the midst of paradise, in the midst of perfection, was sadness. was a sense of loneliness. And God grabbed Adam, and he said, come on over here, and he put him to sleep. And there he did the first operation on earth, and he took one of his ribs, sewed him back up, went over, and from the dirt he made Eve. And God very clearly, specifically says, she is going to be your helpmate. She's going to be your completer, not the one who's to be your competitor. She's the one to help you, Adam, be the person God wants you to be on this earth. And so he makes it clear. Adam was first, Eve was second, and God designed it that way so she would be the helpmate to him. This is not cultural. This is all the way back to creation. So if you read these verses on the women's role in the church, you say, well, that was Ephesus, oh, that was Corinth, oh, that was back in the Greek Empire. No. Or the Roman Empire. That No, no. That's not the case here. This is talking about all the way back to creation. Paul makes this point again in First Corinthians 11, verse 8 and 9. For the man is not from the woman, but the woman is from man. Nor was the man created for the woman but the woman was created for the man. A very important point to God and to Paul as he's teaching why the man is to be the main instrument that God uses in the church service. In verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgressions. Here's the second reasoning. Adam took the fruit from his wife Eve and ate, but he was not deceived. He absolutely knew he was sinning. He knew he was doing the wrong thing. Eve was deceived, though. She, she really did not get that she was being duped by the devil. She didn't see it coming. The devil came, and he didn't tempt her with drugs or alcohol or porn or, you know, greed He came and He seduced her with being more spiritual than she was. Hey, you shouldn't let God act like He's an authority over you. You should be equal to God. And He knows if you eat of this fruit, He's going to have competition. You're going to be as great as He is. Don't let God do that to you. Don't let God suppress you. Eat of that fruit and be equal to God himself. That was the spirit in which she sent. She said, yeah, I want to be equal to God. That's some serious stuff going on there in her heart. However, Adam fell into transgression. Transgression is the word... You see the big black line. I'm on one side of it. I know that God does not want me to go over there, but I am rebelliously doing it. That's transgression. Iniquity is where one minute you're doing righteously and you slip and you slide, and all of a sudden you're into sin. You're like, how did I get here? You know, I did not want that. it, it, it just the weakness of your flesh surprised you and carried you off into sin. But in this case, Adam knew he was sinning. This is why in the New Testament, such as Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, it clearly says, through the one man's sin, Adam, sin entered the world. Look at Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as through the one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because of all sin. You can go on and listen to the teaching in Romans. He's saying, the first Adam sinned. The second Adam is going to be Jesus. Adam brought sin to the whole world, but the second Adam is going to conquer sin for the whole world. But Eve is not accounted that as a sin. Why? Because Adam was supposed to be in charge. He was the leader in that relationship. He was responsible for his wife. Where was Adam while she was talking to the serpent? Why Eve was talking to the serpent? Right there. As soon as she took the fruit and ate it, she turned around and handed it to Adam. He was right there not leading. He was right there not being the spiritual leader, which was to protect her and cover her. And so the Lord is telling us here that because of these things, Adam was made first. Eve was made secondly to be his supporter, to strengthen him. He's the spiritual leader in the home. He's to be the head. First God, then the man, then the woman, then the children. This order of authority. Looking at that passage, in Genesis three sixteen, we learn a very important lesson. After they sinned, God said, here's the consequences of your sin. Eve, here's the consequences of your sin, Adam. First of all, he says to Eve, here's your consequences. He said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Did God deliver on that? Um, (laughs) He sure did. So first of all, there's a physical pain. Secondly, is an emotional pain. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now when we read that, we first go, oh, ah, Eve's desires for her husband, how beautiful. Hollywood can make a movie out of that. (laughs) But he shall rule over her. Oh, not so so romantic now, but you say, what does that mean? We really don't know until we get to Genesis 4. That same exact phrase, your desire shall be towards it, your husband, but he, he sh- must rule over you. So what's that mean? Your desire will be for your husband. We don't know until we read Genesis 4 when Cain is fighting sin. Cain is wanting to kill his brother Abel. And God says to Cain, in Genesis four verse six and seven, the Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will not be, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. Here it is, guys. Its desire is for you, but you should or must rule over it. The same word for word, Hebrew phrase. Sin's desire is for Cain to control Cain, right? Sin wants to control your life. And it's there now, and you must rule over it. It's the same thing. Eve, your desire is to rule over your husband. Your your desire is that you want to be greater than your husband. You want him to be submitted unto you. But that must never happen. Think about it. Women are natural leaders. When you think about what makes a great leader, women naturally, almost every woman is born into this world with those characteristics. Women are better organizers, better communicators. They have a much better eye for detail. They're more disciplined. They're better in discernment. And then they got that sixth sense thing that's a little scary to me. You know? So Eve was a natural leader and Adam was not a natural leader and nor did he want to lead. Eve's like, I'll lead. I'd love to lead. I'm great at leading. Adam, just tag along, man. Be, you know? You know? I'll be Batman, you be Robin, man. we will just you just be my sidekick. And that's what was happening in the garden. Adam was Eve's sidekick. And then she walks over to the tree that they're not supposed to eat of, and there's this amazingly beautiful animal, and she's just having this wonderful conversation, and, and she realizes, hey, oh, I should have ate of this a long time ago. Uh, me and you both, Adam, should be eating of this, because this isn't right, God being over us. We should be equal to him. Sounds scary blasphemous to me. But now, physically, she'll have pain in childbirth. Emotionally, she is the better leader, but she can't do it. She has to wait on her husband to be the leader. My analogy would be, a woman is like a a slick um, sports car. You know, some beautiful red, give, give me a beautiful sports car, guys. A Ferrari, there you go. There's the woman in this beautiful Ferrari cruising. And there's the guy. He's the big diesel truck. You know, just going down the road. And the woman, you know, she's starting out. She's going fast and sleek and, you know, turn corners really easily. And here's the guy. Her natural thing is to get in that Ferrari and get around that diesel. Get the heck away from that diesel. But God said, nope, you're a Ferrari, but you got to be behind the diesel. That's a pretty miserable place to drive, especially if you have a Ferrari, isn't it? Sitting back there looking at that big metal back of the truck. Uh, Not very fun. Listen to... Genesis 3, verse 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it. And then she adds to the word of God, Nor shall you touch it. God never said that, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall n- not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, you see, she's deceived. I've seen some amazing fruit, but I never thought, If I eat that plum, I'll be the smartest guy on earth. Never had that thought. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to be the wisest person if I eat that fruit. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave to her husband with her. Do you see it? And he ate. Adam was not leading. He was following his wife. The greater sin here is Adam was not being the spiritual leader, the protector, the covering for his wife. This is why in the church God's desire is that in the church service it would be a male-dominated presence. Well, why? Women aren't as good as men? They're better. Because you don't think women can do as good a job teaching? Better. You don't think they're better at organizing? They are. They are better at organizing. Well, I mean, this doesn't make sense. It's spiritual. Adam was made first. The woman was made to be his helpmate, not the other way around. And Eve, when it comes especially to spiritual things, needs a covering. She needs a protector. Because the devil will deceive. And she may be in a slick car she needs to be behind the diesel plugging away blah 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 my wife will say something we should do this or do that and i'm like yeah that's a good idea let me think about it you know then one day two weeks later i'll come in going i know exactly what we should do we should do this and that this that's what i told you two weeks ago no you didn't i never heard it i had this as an original thought i've had Ladies, does that happen or what? Yes. That's the that's the pain the woman has is to have to be behind this guy who's more incompetent than they are. But yet, it's also, especially in spiritual things, for their protection. We'll finish it up in verse fifteen. Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if. They, the women, continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Now, the word saved here, so-so, it does mean spiritual salvation, being born again, I'm saved. But understand, that word also is used many times just to mean to be saved from pain, safe from a bad decision, saved from being foolish and living a foolish life and reaping the consequences of foolishness. We see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians 4.16. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in them, for in so doing, this will save both yourself and those who hear you. He's not talking about being born again. He's saying save from pain. Have good, solid doctrine, so you don't get off on rabbit trails into things that aren't healthy and good spiritually and, and hurt people. But then there's a weird thing here. It says she will be saved through childbearing. What's this talking about? It's saying she has an outlet. Her outlet is to teach, not the whole church congregation, not to the men. That's not glorifying to Christ. There's so much on this topic. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 11, also. But it just I just brought to mind. Um, it says that the the head of Christ is the Father. But the head of Jesus is the man, and the head of the woman is the man. So when the man is leading the church, Christ is our head, we give glory to Christ. But when the woman leads spiritually, it's glory to her husband, not to Christ. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 11, the beginning there. But going back on on topic here, what's that mean? The women saved in childbearing. That very thing. That if they... Want to take all their spiritual doctrine and knowledge and information, pour it in to the kids. Notice in 2 Timothy 1 5, he says there, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is also in you. 2 Corinthians 3. Notice he says there, but you, talking to Timothy, must continue in the things which you learned, seen, assured of, knowing that whom you've learned them, that from childhood, this is the Greek word brephos, which means infant, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says, Timothy, what's going to save your life is not what you learned from me, but the grounding your mother and your grandmother gave you starting in infancy. Your strength right now is the fact that from a baby all through your childhood, you had this strong input of doctrine, of teaching, of the knowledge of God in the Bible through your mother and your grandmother. And now I'm confident you'll be safe and strong. Interesting in 1 Timothy, he says, widows, for them to be supported, number one, in 1 Timothy 5, 3 and 4, it says you couldn't have children of your own. But interesting, at the same time, in 1 Timothy 5:10, it said, in order to be supported as a widow, you still had to have brought up children. So to be a woman taken care of, a widow taken care of by the church, she didn't have her own kids, but one of the qualifications is that she still poured her life out into kids in order for her to be supported as a widow. And again, if they continue in this peaceable and self-controlled thing. Well, finishing up here, as we wrap it up, this difficult teaching. In 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12, it says this. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes to the woman. But all things are from God. So he says, guys, don't get prideful. Well... Eve, you wouldn't be around if it wasn't for my rib. Well, after that rib story, there's not one person who's lived on the planet without a woman. So he says, hey, don't be prideful. And don't forget who gave birth to the Messiah. It was a woman, a godly woman. So he says we are both um, equally humbled by the other person. In Galatians 3.28, a verse that people often read says, Neither is Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, neither is there male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what is this talking about? That when we come to prayer, when it comes to the spiritual gifts of prophesying, we are all equally children before God. In God's hearingness, He doesn't see male nor femaleness. He just sees all His kids coming before Him. <coughs> Well, questions that are often asked are this. Is it sin if a woman teaches the Bible or preaches in the church? No, the Bible doesn't say that here. He just says it's not wise. You're, you're, you're setting the woman up for deception. You're setting the woman up for a fall. So there are churches that say, well, my wife's going to preach and she's in full submission unto me and I give her permission and it's okay for her to preach. No, I, I, don't, I don't believe that would be correct. But if they do it, that's the way they choose to do it. Have I been in churches where uh, they say, hey, and today, and they have a woman speak? I have. And you know, my attitude isn't, oh, I'm going to storm out of here and protest. I'm just like, hey, speak to me. I'm open. And I hear a great sermon. Do I think it's wise? No. Do I think it's sin? No, I don't. I don't think it's sin. I just don't think it's a wise thing to do. Are there times or seasons where there is exceptions to this role? Many of them. Not not a whole, whole, whole bunch, but there are several. Deborah, Esther, remember Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife who tutored, tutored Apollos? It mentions her first. She was the main leader in that couple and, and discipling Apollos. It was the wife as well as the husband both. In China, all the men were put in prison, so the women became pastors. There's more women pastors in China than there are men pastors. In the holiness movement it's at Azusa Street, about half of, the, half of the pastors that came out of that and started many denominations, started revival that really uh, brought us in into where we are today in Christianity, half of them were women. Interesting, it slowly tapered off until it was almost none. But even Chuck had Corey Timboom come and share her testimony. On more than one occasion, I had Ann Kimmel come and share at our church in San Diego. So I think there can be exceptions to hear testimonies, to hear uh, people share what God has done in their life without it being a mockery or an insult to God in any way. I'd just like to say this God is God in neither male nor female. But yet, God always, almost always, a couple exceptions, refers to himself in the masculine, not the feminine. So, God, even in his presentation of who he is, presents himself in the male, even though he's neither male nor female. Anthropomorphically, he's male. Jesus didn't choose six women and six men apostles. All the apostles were men that Jesus chose. And if you look at the effect of Christianity in a culture, wherever Christianity has gone, women have been elevated. Most cultures where Christianity is not, women are treated horribly, especially we know today in the Muslim culture how horrific that is. But um Those are some thoughts. And I know there's a lot of questions and I'll be around to answer any of those. And let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. We ask in Jesus' name you'd continue to speak deeper and deeper into our hearts as we go line upon line, precept upon precept through your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.